Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, so before we get into today's episode, I just want to tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language, and I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend, Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences, and he really is a genius. His techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's going to redirect you to some of all these best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is the founder of Inbox Done, and he is an angel investor of 30-plus companies. He has built a solar farm in the Ukraine, earned $2 million from blogging and traveling in the world, and lived in 26 cities in Airbnbs, all while growing his business and working only two hours per day. Wow. Please welcome to the show, Yaro Starak. Yaro, how are you? I'm really good, Mikkel. Looking forward to this conversation. Me too, me too. Okay, so before we get going today, I don't know if I want to jump straight into the Airbnb stuff or if we want to get into the Ukraine solar farm. There's so many things in this intro that I'm interested in. But I guess give us a bit of a background first and then so many things to explore today. Yeah, so born and raised in Australia, in Brisbane, Australia, for those people who know Australia, basically lived my whole like upbringing there. Like most Australians, we know we want to travel. Most people leave in their 20s. I went to university at a great time. I was 18. The internet was going through its dot-com bubble around the late 1990s. So that kind of got me into the internet as a a place to potentially explore a business. 
And, you know, I knew I didn't want a job. I knew I wanted to travel. I knew I wanted to have no cap on my income potential. I had no clue on how I might, you know, fund that kind of lifestyle, become a digital nomad before that was a phrase really. But thankfully I, I, got an internet account as I enrolled in university and started to play around. Ended up building a, a card game business. It was a Magic the Gathering. For those who know the game, it's still going today. I used to play that. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so I played that 16, 17, 18-year-old in high school and then in university. And I built this website that was kind of like a, a hobby slash e-commerce site. Um, you know, it was very much a testing ground for me to learn how to build a website, um, how to write content. I wrote tournament reports. And eventually I actually had a trading card forum, which was the smartest thing I ever did because people came back and, and used the site. And I made maybe $500 a month as my kind of peak income there. Um, more like a side hustle, I guess you'd call it today while I was doing my university studies, um, but convinced me that the internet is where I want to spend my time. And of course, you know, all the stories around then there was eBay and there's amazon.com and so many other internet businesses. So that's kind of what kicked it off. I didn't travel until my next business. And when I say that I traveled with family, I got dragged to Canada to see the grandmothers and the, you know, the aunts and the uncles um, from Australia all the way to Toronto. But that was like once every two or three years for two weeks. And it wasn't under you know my control. I was just a kid being pulled over there. So I was anxious to get out there and, and see more of the world myself, but I had to build up an income source. So to be honest, the next business I started was an essay editing company called Better Edit. That was what I call my first real business, very much a digital focused business too. I was inspired by eBay, which as you, most people know, it was like a marketplace with buyers and sellers. It was huge back then, still kind of around now, I guess. And I wanted to make a business like that, a marketplace business. So connecting editors with university students who are often coming from English as a second language background. I built the website and acted as a, a connector between those two groups. And it you know, wasn't a multi-million dollar business, but it got me a full-time salary and enough that I could start to consider traveling. And that's actually what led to my, my first sort of solo trip uh, overseas. Okay. So is that a business where the Chinese university students pay someone else to do their report or their essay on something like that? Not quite. And it's funny when you say Chinese, that sounds like the obvious choice today. But back then in Australia, anyway, it was like Middle East, Korean, Japanese. I don't think the Chinese had become a dominant you know, international student at the time. We're talking you know, year 2000 sort of timeframe. But we were an academic editing and proofreading service. So we didn't write a paper. We might do structural advice, certainly editing and proofreading the basics like that. Um, often you're taking someone who has a lot of intellect because they're in university, but since it's not their first language, writing English to present their ideas, it just doesn't come across well. So there'd be like a, a connection there. And of course, overseas students were paying a lot more to attend university. So they had their parents' financial support, which made them a great target market. But, you know, I'll be honest, that business started because I wanted something that I could scale. Now, I've, my magic site had such small profit margins, so I needed something I felt I could actually make more money from. It started as like a language translation service, then a resume editing service, and then morphed into an essay editing service. And that became, you know, the niche service that took off. So, you know, these two businesses were like totally my entrepreneur 101, online marketing 101 experience, just learning all the basics about pricing, positioning, 
choosing a topic, going after what works and discarding what doesn't. It was a great learning experience and a lot of fun too. Uh, stressful. Um, wasn't you know up and down a lot with in terms of income and results and things like that. But um, it was a fun time as well with the dot-com boom. Well, and that's very interesting too, because I mean, you're going to university and that's supposed to be your quote unquote education. And now you're telling me you started a business and that's really where you learned a lot of these things. Oh yeah. So it's like my listeners have heard me say this over and over and over again. It's like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to build a business, if you want to make money, university might not be the best avenue. You're probably better to take a lot of that money, try a business. Even if it fails, great, that's an excellent education. Do the best you absolutely can or you know, encourage your children or your grandkids to do the very best they can. But if they fail at their business, I mean, that comes with some really phenomenal lessons for them. Yeah, and it's such good advice to hear now. Like what you're saying to me, I wholeheartedly agree with it. But I know my 18-year-old self was so lacking in confidence. I kind of went with the crowd. You know, everyone was going to university. I'll go to university. Um, I would certainly advise, you know, anyone young today to do exactly, you know, what you said. But... It's easier, I think, today to do that because of it's all around us. It's on the internet. There's support services. There's podcasts to listen to, like what we're doing. So, yeah, it's certainly um, more comfortable. I feel, even though nothing's really comfortable at 18, I think. But yeah, it's it definitely easier today. Well, and you know, we did go through this massive period where entrepreneurship was really celebrated, and I think that is excellent because, in my opinion entrepreneurs will save the world. I mean, an entrepreneur at the core of his being is someone who solves problems. So anything that's challenging the world right now, I will always go to the free market over our government. Now, these days, we're looking at a lot of socialism, a lot of entitlement, a lot of people that want things for free without working for them. And for me, this is wrong. I mean, if we have entrepreneurs that can fix problems and can do it in a competitive way without having to have monopolies and lobbyists and people going out there and keeping competition out. I mean, that's where the problems come from. Otherwise, let people compete. Let people try to create a business and outdo each other. Products, better products for lower prices. I mean, that's where the market is going to go. Anyways, I digress. So you built these two first two businesses. Now, did you have an exit event? Did the business still exist? What happened next? So the card game company, uh, I feel funny calling it a company, hobby website that made some money. I did end up selling it. Honestly, that was a surprise. I didn't even think I could sell a website. It wasn't common back then to do that like it is today, but it just dawned on me one day. Yeah, it makes money. I could sell it. So I, I ended up uh, over a few months, found a buyer. It was actually one of the forum trading people. They were trading a lot of cards. It made sense. So we negotiated. I, I think I sold it for $13,000, something like that. So you know, not huge money, but Huge money for a 19, well, probably 20-year-old by that time. Yeah, absolutely. And back in the day when money was probably still worth something, like yeah, a lot more uh, than it is right now. Yeah, it was certainly enough to like pay my rent for the entire probably year at the time. If not, yeah, probably I'd say at the time. The essay editing company was my main focus after graduating as well. So I kept that business all the way to 2007. And while I was running that, that's actually what led to me getting into blogging and podcasting as well. And that became, not that I saw it coming, but it became my main focus for the next decade plus. While I was starting blogging, which was in 2005, I became sort of not... I guess a little disillusioned with the topic of my essay editing company in the sense that I love making money from it. I love the growing of it, but I wasn't really passionate about this subject matter or this industry. You know, So when I got into blogging and podcasting and seeing a path there as a, an online education business, 
then I was like, that's where I want to go. I want to go down the information marketing path. So I decided then to exit uh, around 2007. It was a crazy year, actually. One of my best memories in 2007, I sold my essay editing company, about $100,000. So again, you know, not retirement money, but it was certainly put a deposit on a home money, buy a new car money, travel if you want to money. Meanwhile, I launched my first ever training program from the audience I'd grown from blogging and podcasting for about two years at that time. Um, very much an experiment. I didn't see myself as a coach or a teacher, but I was like, everyone says, if you have an audience, you should try selling something you, of your own creation. So I did. And I, I actually had 400 students sign up for a program I called Blog Mastermind back then. And that meant my income was very stable. It was a recurring subscription business. I had about 15,000 a month then coming in for as long as I could keep members in there. And it was such a transition and such a sense of real achievement, um, you know, freedom goals financially. I felt, felt like I was on that path. Plus I also, you know, bought at my first house and bought a new car. So it all happened in like three months. And it's funny because now I probably wouldn't feel the way I did back then. Cause it was like the first time all those things happened to me. First six figure exit. First time I bought my own property and car and first time I launched you know, an online course and brought in a, a six-figure income from that. So. so when you exited this, did you use that money and actually pivot straight into the next business? Did you take a break for a little while? What did that little transition period look like? Well, there was no transition. It was all happening at once. Uh, just everything all at yeah, the same time? Wow. When I say it, it wasn't planned, it just for some reason this contract and the money transfer for the sale of one company happened literally probably about three weeks before I opened the doors to this new course. And I was doing a launch campaign for that. My first ever time doing a launch as well. Meanwhile, I was settling on the property that I just purchased because I knew I'd had, you know, hundred grand hitting my bank account. I wanted to put that money to work straight away. So it was actually really stressful to be honest. There was no break, but it was a thrilling kind of stress. So I, I loved it. Uh, honestly, I, I, I wish I could do that almost once a year. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It's like, this is happening. Everything is yeah. going forwards and just buckle up and go for it, eh? Amazing. So we're kind of doing this day in the life of Yarrow, kind of backtracking through everything. So, I mean, let's just continue for a little bit. And then I do want to get into some of the other things, but okay, what happened next? Yeah, it does feel like that. Is it? It's a time life story, huh? Yeah, there um, we go. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously blogging became my main focus, but you'll like this. This is the first time I was like, okay, I have a truly digital business. I want to travel and I want to do this properly. So up until that point, I had done a couple of trips with family to Canada. And then this sounds bizarre, but the first time I ever did solo trips, I also went to Canada uh, and I went, and you'll, you'll know this coming from Ontario as a background. I landed in Toronto in December, both times. Smart. Yeah, yeah not, not the brilliant. Great weather, right? <laughs> so I would proceed to spend three months of basically staying at home trapped because of snowstorms all the time, not really seeing much or exploring things. That being said, it gave me the first time where I felt like I'm the boss of what I'm doing. I just was a bit overwhelmed with like the fear of solo travel outside my comfort zone, which is kind of why I started in Canada, those two trips. This time, it's 2008, I'm like, okay, ton of money in the bank, ton of money coming in. I can write content as I travel. Let's do this for real. So I actually left on a, this is my first trip around the world. I feel like I'm, I was reading about you, Mikhail, and you've done 400 times around the planet. I was like, this is the first time I did one full circle in, a, in a, about a nine-month period. Well, to be fair, mine is if you add up all of the miles that I've flown 
then have done over 400 circumnavigations. But a lot of that is, you know, north to south, not all of it is east to west or west to east. But, and, and I haven't, although I've flown over the polar caps in the north, I haven't gone that way around the world, but back and forth, back and forth, back and forth when I lived in the Middle East and everything like that. It's still a lot of time in airplanes, that's for sure, right? So, yeah. Um, so I, I wasn't a fan of flying either. This is the irony of all this. You know, I want to travel, don't like long flights. Uh, so I kind of broke down my trip into these kind of island hopping trips, you know, getting out of Australia, you can't help but do some long flights. But so I, I left from Australia, went to Fiji for the first time, went to Hawaii, which I've been to many times and I always loved it. Then I landed in Canada as I always do. But that time I actually explored a bit more, spent some time in Vancouver, visited family in Toronto, went to Montreal for the first time where I am now. And that's actually where I, I don't want to go into every stop in that trip, but that's the first time I went to Europe as well, ever actually. And I started exploring, uh, you know, the big cities, London, Paris, um, and then a few other places. Like one of my best memories from this trip was I was in Bulegmeni, which is a, a beach town about an hour outside of Athens in Greece. And I was doing a product launch with, uh, I had a co-founder of a, like a second course we were creating. It was a first ever video course we'd done. And my co-founder, Gideon, he was back in Brisbane doing videos. And I was sitting like not on the beach, wasn't that stereotypical with the laptop, but certainly in my apartment near the beach, writing the emails, writing the blog posts, coordinating with him over probably Skype at the time. And we were you know, doing this campaign. And I was like, this is incredible that I can be halfway around the world working with my co-founder, uh, creating and launching a training program reaching hundreds of thousands of people through email mostly who would then buy this course. And then that program actually created, went on to sell a million dollars worth of that course over the course of a couple of years. So it was like living the dream kind of experience. Like I, I can't think of any point in my life where I felt the kind of freedom I always wanted financially, location independence, all those kinds of things. And that was like really when I traveled the most I've ever traveled, I really, I did a full circle. I went from Athens to the Middle East, Singapore as well, and back to Australia over about nine months of traveling. So it was a lot of fun. Amazing. Well, I mean, entrepreneurship is really the only thing that will ever give that to you. And, and give to you is probably the wrong phrasing here. I mean, you have to work your butt off and you're going to have to work it harder than any nine to five type of job, you know, where someone else is going to provide for you. But if you want true freedom, if you want to be able to travel and do everything you want on your time, I mean, entrepreneurship is really the best and really the only option out there for sure. I agree. Maybe property. I mean, if you have a source of income to, to buy a, a property portfolio that pays money, you know, but you have to have some kind of income source to start with, really. Exactly. Like, I mean, I've had lots of investors on the show and we'll talk about Forex, we'll talk about stock trading, we'll talk about many of these different types of things. But for the majority of the people who have been on this program, and I think the most of the people that are listening to this, you know, they're not starting with millions of dollars where they can invest out of nowhere. I mean, they have to build that up. And to build that up, I mean, entrepreneurship is a very, very clear path forwards. I'm an investor. I've invested in many projects and hopefully we'll be able to talk about your angel investing on this interview as well. But there needs to be a point where you build that cash flow, where you, you, know, you have something that you know you're going to be taken care of. You need to build up enough money so you can invest. I mean, to save up 50 bucks and go start investing, I mean, really, what's that going to do? You're going to get eaten up by fees and, okay, you probably learned some lessons, but I think time spent 
build a business, build something that fits your lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. I mean, even if I think back to that trip, I would not have been able to do it if I didn't have a significant ongoing cash flow source from that business. I would not have been able to live off the property because I just bought one um, and there wasn't really much income from it. Um, I was living in it when I wasn't traveling. The first business was sold. Yes, it's a nice capital hit, but you don't want to just travel and eat up all your capital. As some of my friends did, they'd make $50,000 and then they'd come back from traveling for a year and then all that money would be gone and they couldn't do it again. That's, so To be fair, that's what I did when I first started. However, I never came back. I would just stop along the way and then work whatever random job. Like I lived in Australia. I was there for three years and I worked while I was there. But every three months, I would go on a vacation. I went to Fiji and Hawaii and Tonga and Vanuatu and all these countries from Australia because, I mean, you can. You get direct flights and it's nice and quick. Yeah. What kind but, of, did you uh, work like normal jobs at that time? Normal jobs, have, yeah, normal absolutely. Job. Okay. Normal jobs. Uh, nothing too special there but it funded my travels. And we started traveling. Well, no, I think if you started traveling in 2008, 2009, I started in 2000. So the opportunities for online business were not something that I was exposed to at that time. Like we had internet in 2000, but it's kind of that web 1.0 interface, you know, like I think Amazon existed, but it wasn't like it is today. You know, Google wasn't the monster that it is right now. You know, you couldn't just build a website like you can today using WordPress or HubSpot or something like that, or any of these types of builder programs that you put on the back of those. It was very different at that time. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and I had the asset editing company around 2000. I could have traveled with that if I had done one thing earlier than I, and it took me a while to do it. I, I need to break free from email. It's funny because it ties into what I do today, but I, because I went on a trip to Sydney from Brisbane to attend an event and there was no, like we had Blackberries then, but there certainly wasn't, you know. I remember those research yeah. in motion. Yeah. Are they <laughs> Canadian, still around? Canadian company. They are actually. Yeah. Oh my God. I didn't even have a Blackberry. So I was in Sydney and I'm, I had to go to internet cafes and I had to be there nonstop because if a project came in by email, often a student would need their paperback in 12 hours. So if I couldn't get it to the ed editor, confirm they could do it in that time frame, collect the money, it wouldn't happen. So I would be in in a cafe checking. I'd go back two hours later, back two hours later. So I couldn't travel with that until I put someone in place to do email, to do customer service. So, so a lot of this for me wasn't just, I don't know about you as well, but making enough income, but it was actually building a business where I delegated all these things that would take my time. Uh, and that's what happened with, as I moved forward with the coaching and education business, it wasn't a service. So I was selling a digital delivery. And so it could just be delivered. People would take it at their own time. I showed up for a coaching call once a month. Um, I might interact in forums and things like that, but it was very, and of course we had the iPhone by then and more readily available Wi-Fi, and, and sort of, you could expect to have it everywhere you go. And of course today it's even easier, right? But it's been an evolution. I'm thinking even as I, you were saying Airbnbs before, and I realized on my first trip, I don't think I stayed in any Airbnbs. They were all either hotels or VRBOs, because that was the- What is a VRBO? Uh, so vacation rentals by owners. They, they actually got bought by the company that's the only kind of mainstream competitor, I think. I, don't, I think it might be hotel.com, I'm not sure. 
but they were around before Airbnb. Similar strategy, you rented a person's uh, entire house, not really a room. That was one of Airbnb's sort of, you know, evolutions. But I would, I, like in Vulegmeni in Athens, I had rented an apartment on BRBO. And that was groundbreaking because I like, I lived like a local. I had a, a fridge, I had, you know, stove. Uh, and that wasn't available in hotels quite as readily. So, and then it was funny when Airbnb came along, the way a their website presented things in such a more dynamic modern style big pictures that was amazing obviously being able to rent just a room it made it cheaper not just the entire house and i felt really bad for vrbo because they must have thought oh why didn't we do that you know we, we could have been the airbnb of the time but yeah, i think they're still going they're still doing all right okay well and then to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier about automating i mean today if you were to build that business from scratch i mean there would be software that you'd be able to purchase or program that everything would be automated so you wouldn't be sitting in a Starbucks with your BlackBerry. But back in the day, we still automated things. We just did it with human sources. So we would have someone that would work for us because really automation is about you not having to do it yourself. So old school automation is just hire someone to do these tasks that you don't want to do. Yeah, still today, I think it's not like a lot of tasks that in my company is still being done by human beings. You know, you can't automate certain things. So I love the combination of software and people, though. I think that's a magical thing. Well, and I think it's also very interesting that you can build a seven or eight figure business at the moment with one staff, two staff, three staff. I mean, you don't, I mean, to do a multi million dollar business, you don't need a staff of 20 people, 30 people. I mean, I only have a couple of people who work for me and we're doing very, very well. I mean, because it's that combination of the software out there that really does a lot of the heavy lifting, whether that be email autoresponders or follow-up or webhooks or, I mean, a million and one other things that you do and you need to learn as an entrepreneur really frees up a lot of your time. And to be honest, a lot of the time does it better than a human is going to do it anyways. Because if you can write the processes and the procedures and you create that asset for your business once, it should run perfectly from now until the end of time. Okay, monitor it, check on it, et cetera, et cetera. But I've come back to staff members three months, six months later, and it's like, what are you doing? This is not what I taught you. This is not what we talked about. This is not what we agreed upon. And they've just made something up completely different. So it is, as you said, that combination of technology and the human aspect. And you put the human in when that is applicable and you keep the technology there for kind of the lower touch point types of things. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty much like you, when I was running this blog business, it was me, a web designer, uh, a person doing my email, customer support, and then a few like here and there contractors for things, a copywriter for a sales page, pay-per-click advertiser running a campaign. But it was amazing. And I didn't quite get seven figures in one year, but we certainly got, you know, seven figures over the course of two or three years, a couple of times. So it is amazing. And the profit margins. I mean, I, I think back to that going digital products, low overheads. I, just, I was keeping 70 or 80% of, of the income, which today, like, I mean, I, I'm kind of jealous of my previous self with <laughs> previous business model, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's the margins. Like, okay, yeah, you can run a $10 million business, but if your profit margin is 1% or 2%, okay, good for you. I'd rather run you know, a $1 million business and have my profit margins at 90% and take home $900,000. Like you have a very nice life on 900K. Or, and I'm just using this as an example, not of what I'm actually, you know, I'm not disclosing anything here, but I mean, 
Really, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Very, very true. So let's, let's dig into the Airbnb. So 26 cities in Airbnb. What did you learn? What, did you, what was your experience like living in an Airbnb? Yeah, so if we take both you know, VRBO to begin with and obviously hotels, and then in the last, I don't know, eight or nine years since Airbnb has been the de facto choice, I've continued to travel, obviously been to new places, going to Austin on Monday for the first time. We'll you know, no doubt be staying in Airbnbs along the way. And I honestly felt like that unlocked traveling on a whole new level for me. Like I, I, I don't dislike hotels. I think, you know, that there's a kind of a feeling around hotels. You are on holidays, you are having a new experience, but you don't want to do perpetual travel in hotels. There's something that it becomes too much and you start to crave just the simple things you have in a house, like your space to do yoga, or obviously I, I like to cook. I don't want to constantly be eating out in restaurants, even if it's cooking from food I'm buying in a new city, it's still different. You know, it's still a different feeling. Or sometimes you just want to eat your regular favorites. It can be more affordable. It can be just comfort food, whatever the case. So I really valued that. I also valued the familiarity of, of a, a house structure, you know, like there's a bedroom, there's a bed, there's a bathroom, you know, it's all separate. Um, plus then there's an aspect of living in the types of houses you might not otherwise get to experience as well. I think that's kind of like maybe a perk that doesn't get talked about is you get to choose to live somewhere where you might not otherwise have ever bought a place or rented a place, but you can have this kind of grand experience or this rustic experience or this culturally unique experience, uh, depending where you are. I know like even for the first time when I came to where I am today, Montreal was an Airbnb experience and Canada, as, as you know, Mikhail, you've got sort of Anglophone side, and then there's this French side, and Montreal kind of staggers the two, but is definitely more French, but also has a totally different style of building, you know, in the sense that there's triplexes here and quadplexes, and there's leafy tree streets, lots of parks. And I found it quite a contrast to the kind of concrete jungle of Toronto, where I was staying with family and, and often living there too. So even just that little switch to feeling like I'm in European Canada versus American Canada in Ontario, and then living in Airbnb and feeling what it's like inside these kind of houses. And I, I also, it's funny, I think back to, I stayed in Melbourne for a year before I left my home country, I did leave my hometown. And even that transition staying in Airbnbs there, it was different because Melbourne's different to Brisbane, They're like different types of cities. So I, I love it. Um, I mean, I think it's fantastic we have the option, and I don't think I would travel as nearly as much if it wasn't for Airbnb. We're just going to pause for a second on the interview because I want to tell you about this special resource that I have for you. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It is a PDF downloadable report, and you're going to find it at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, why do I want to tell you about this? Well, it is an amazing resource for anyone out there who is looking to go offshore to become an expat, expat hopefuls. If you're looking at immigration or plan B residencies or 
any of these types of things that we talk about on the show. This really condenses the information into really easy to understand. And then from there, it gives you all the resources, links to the additional resources, or who you can work with, the professionals involved in this. So I've had some amazing feedback on this and I wanna give it to you free, 100% free. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com and at the very top of the page, you will see the special report. You can sign up. There's no credit card needed. There's no nothing like that. I just want you to have this resource because I think it's really important and I think it's gonna really serve you well. So enjoy, go to expatmoneyshow.com, download your free special report and let's jump back into today's interview. Well, it certainly made travel considerably easier. I mean, I started traveling in 2000 and I was driving. I was, we just got back from Brazil. I was in the car with my wife in Brazil and we were kind of chit-chatting and I was like, I don't even, like, it's so hard to remember what travel was like without Airbnb and Uber. I'm like, I'm like, I used to take the public bus and then try to translate like the bus stop, you know, and figure it out without a Google Translate app on a smartphone or anything like that, and then try to get to where I was going this way. And then we were staying, we weren't staying in hotels back in the day, I was staying in youth hostels back in the day, which was how I first started traveling. So it would be eight or six or six or eight or 10 or 16 people in a dorm room. And it's like, my goodness, how things have changed so much. And now it's like, so easy. You just pull out your phone. You can book a new place to stay. You can order a car. It will be there in three and a half minutes. You can select how you want the air conditioning. I mean, I was at the law office a couple times this week and we were taking Uber Blacks. I mean, you can set now. I want it cold and I want it quiet and I don't want to talk because I'm working while I'm in the car. And it's just like my mind 20 years ago was like, just could not have anticipated these types of changes for the travel industry. No, no, I think uh, GPS is one of the things I really appreciate when I enter places I've never been to where the language I don't understand. I remember using like the Maps app in, in Tokyo going, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have this app because this place is really hard to get around. <laughs> I remember before some trips in Europe, I actually, where did we get them from? I think we got them from, what's it called? Uh, CAA, the... Uh, the car, like if your car breaks down, we had to specially order maps of Europe from them and they had to bring them in. So like maps of France and England and Spain and stuff like that. And I, my first trip, I think I traveled with like a stack of maps to figure out what towns and cities, because I had no itinerary. I was just making things up as I went. And I mean, I didn't have money for phone calls didn't, there was no internet cafes or anything like that. So it was sending postcards back to my folks to keep them abreast of what was happening. Or maybe we had internet cafes, but they weren't very popular and no one really knew them. So you go like once a month or something like this. And kids these days, they have it so easy. Oh my God. I sound like such a curmudgeon. It's Jesus. not even that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It is bizarre. Like you're right. I'm thinking back now. I went fruit picking in Tasmania and I was staying in a hostel and yes, it was like, I mean, frankly, it was kind of horrible in terms of some of the, you know, that, <laughs> was that the high, woofing? Did you do woofing? Uh, not woofing. It was meant to be actually making money and, and, you know, 
traveling with the fruit. So I picked apples, I picked strawberries, picked grapes. Uh, and honestly, I was terrible at it. I mean, I made $50 a day working 12 hour days, picking apples. So it was not good. I'd, I'd spend my money on food and shelter and that was it. Um, but I do remember going to like the local town, which was like an hour walk from the countryside backpackers I was in. And I would write emails back. So there was no social media. I wasn't blogging yet. I, I was, I think my essay editing company was maybe just getting started. It wasn't really busy. And I would write, what do you call, I remember the name for them. There was this groupies. I think they were called groupies. So like group emails where you'd write a story of how your travels are going. So I, you know, carbon copy my mom, my dad, friends from, from high school. And you just tell this story. And I love doing that. I mean, it was kind of like blogging 101, if I think about it before blogging took off, but now there'd be no point because you'd be on doing your story on your Instagram every single 30 minutes. Everyone knows what you're doing, where you are. So it's lost a bit of its charm, I think, because <laughs> we have so much now. Yeah. Well, I know my father kept all of the postcards that I sent him and I must have sent him That's nice. from, God, 50, 60, 70 countries or something like that until, I don't know. I guess it just got replaced with digital communication, but I'm sure he still has them probably sitting somewhere in a, in a box or something like that. And those are nice memories. I mean, that's, it's cute. It's quaint. Yeah. I, I find it funny to think, cause like, I would love to have seen my great you know, uncle or my great grandmothers and grandfathers having the technology we had. So I could have seen what they were like when they were younger. Cause that's the one thing our generation and forward will now always have is a digital record of your parents and your grandparents and as far back as you want to go chronicling their lives and that what a history you know that is like i can imagine you know obviously it was world war ii and world war one so it's you can't insert stories into that environment because it's they're too far apart in time frame but going forward I, I i just can't imagine like it's imagine your kids now will look at you my first ever youtube video me with long hair uh, you know, talking about something. And it's like, it's such a, you know, maybe they won't care. I don't know. Kids might not care what their parents are doing when they're younger. But <laughs> no, but yeah. I think they will for sure. I mean, we were talking about this the other day as well, that, you know, my daughter's life is being documented. I mean, my wife and I take tons of photos and videos of our kids. Okay. In our personal opinion, pictures of kids and videos of kids don't belong on the internet. I mean, there's no pictures of my kids, you know, just on Facebook or on Instagram or something like that. For me, that's wrong. But for us, for our family, yes, we keep a ton of photos and a ton of pictures. So she'll be able to see as she was growing and we make, you know, videos, you know, when she was three years old, four years old, five years old, you know, and compile them together. Okay, I have, there are, there are videos of when I was a child. However, they're on some type of a device that, God knows how we would even hook it up anymore. God knows where the videos are. I assume that they haven't been thrown out. And then, like, is the film still a good quality? I have no idea. It's like, you know, we got maybe a dozen pictures of me from a kid that I've seen in the last 20 years. I'm sure there's more around, but I don't really... I mean, you just have to think back in your own memory. But what is that going to do? And this is a hypothetical question, not one that we really need to get into, but... I'm wondering what it will be like for a child in 20 years from now when they'll be, be able to look back and see like a full documentation of their entire lives, what they looked like, who they spent time with, you know, how they reacted, their behavior, where they lived, all of these types of things. I mean, that's just so wild to think about because we've never had that before in human history. And imagine like 10,000 years from Anyways, second, second digression, second digression. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. 
Ukraine, solar farm. How did this, this, this doesn't compute. This piece doesn't match up to everything else. A solar farm in Ukraine. Okay, I know that you have Ukrainian family heritage, but where does the solar farm fit in? Let me ask you a question first. Do, do you know what Eurovision is? Ooh, the name sounds so familiar. Remind me, you're putting me on the spot. That's fine. You're a Canadian, so it's not, I mean, originally. So it, it's strange to me because I grew, growing up in Australia, Eurovision, which is a European song contest that's been running since I think the 50s. It's like the longest ever, kind of like American Idol type show, but okay. it's not kind of cheesy American style. It's this European cheesy style as well. And it's something in Australia where you have like a party, like you, you would get your friends together, you'd watch the stream of the show. The, the, the music is kind of a weird eclectic mix because you've got all these different European countries, uh, you know, the Nordic countries, Russia, Moldova, then obviously France and Spain and Portugal and England. And they all submit a song and that's often like sometimes very cultural, sometimes it's very powerful religious type song. Maybe it's part of a movement and there's a winner every year. And the winning song is where the show is going to be hosted. So where it moves to in Europe um, and it's huge in Australia. So I grew up loving it, watching it. And I promised myself one day I would go and attend the show live. So go back in time. I think it was 2016. You know, Ukraine wins Eurovision with the political song, in fact. And then that song meant that Ukraine would host it in 2017. I think I'm getting the years right. And I was living in Vancouver at the time, was about to look at doing a European trip. I had a reason to go to Ukraine. I'm going to go attend Eurovision, which kind of kicked off another European kind of trip there. So I ended up going to Kiev first. That's where Eurovision was hosted and was a little bit apprehensive. I'll be absolutely honest. I didn't know what to expect from an you know, old Soviet bloc country, known for being a little bit more, I guess, you know, poor standard livings of the lower, weaker currency, corruption, all that sort of thing. Didn't know what life would be like there. Get there and then also ended up going to Lviv, which is the town close, the major town closest to where my father was born. And also the most Western European, it used to be part of Poland. It's got like a Western European architecture. So I ended up staying there for about three months on this first trip and was blown away by how, I don't want to use the word normal, that seems weird, but how consistent it was with a European destination. Yes, there's certainly some things like their, their trams are ridiculously old. Some of them are anyway. Food is so cheap. It's $3 for a meal. But yet on the flip side, they've got a huge tech scene. So many programmers and developers are from there. People often outsource there. The food is some of the best food I've ever had. And plus, because it is so cheap, you know, you, you don't ever need to cook at home really if you don't want to. So I had a great time, long story short. And I was like connecting a little bit with some people locally there. Obviously, my name's Ukrainian. My dad's from Ukraine. He still speaks Ukraine. Never taught me Ukrainian, unfortunately. So I was winging it with my, my Canadian English and just kind of enjoyed that experience. Um, went away, traveled some other spots in Europe and then decided to come back. And honestly, I don't know if you've ever had this with your travels, Mikhail, but I reached a point where I was like, I actually don't know what to do next. Um, I don't know where to go. I don't not like my businesses were kind of in flux. I was switching, moving away from my coaching business and focusing on inbox done my new company, but it was so new. It wasn't really anything yet. And I was like, I don't know where to live. I don't know what to put, put my energy into. I had a, a girlfriend who became a friend and a travel partner. And then we were traveling separately for the first time. So I was finding myself solo traveling again. So it was this kind of like moment of complete flux. I didn't know what to do. And then in a case of fortuitous timing or just 
something happened. I, I'd met this guy named Andre. He was a friend of my traveling partner at the time. And he was just like this 25 year old guy worked in the government, very connected, um, clearly wants to do entrepreneurial things as well, but he was having a great career in politics at 25. So it was, you know, very interested in staying in that space. And he comes to me and says, well, there's this thing as a tariff for solar or green energy in Ukraine where the government's trying to encourage it. And I was like, okay, I, that's interesting. At first, when I heard about it, I thought kind of nothing of it. He just told me about it. But then when I returned and I was in this state of flux, I was more open to, let's see what the universe throws at me. You know, what might be kind of interesting. Now I have to preface this with one other important topic the cryptocurrency boom was happening and had been happening that year. And through a connection I'd made in Toronto with someone who was early in Ethereum, I'd actually bought some Ethereum. And I spent a big part of 2017 watching my money grow, like my investment in Bitcoin and Ethereum and a couple of others, particularly Ethereum, jump 100,000 one day, then lose 50,000 the next. I was on this crazy roller coaster, but overall, the money was very much climbing and it was becoming a significant amount of money. But I felt like I was winning gambling. You know, I didn't see this as a, an asset class I was investing in like a startup. This was purely gambling money. So I didn't know when to take it out. I didn't know what to do with it. I was excited by it, but I kind of felt there's got to be a crash at some point. This is rising too fast, too hard. So I suddenly had this money. I'm thinking when he came to me with this solar idea, the second time when I'm in flux, I was planning on flying back to Vancouver. He says, listen, before you go, let's look at this seriously. So he tells me how it works. Long story short, I get intrigued enough to say, you know what? I want to do this. And then I remember this clearly. I canceled my flight. I said, I'm going to stay here for you know maybe six months and I'll grab an Airbnb for a longer term. I actually started learning Ukrainian, taking some lessons, you know, found a gym. I kind of localized myself while we were starting up what we needed to do, like source land to build the solar plant. We had to find partners, uh, determine the size we could afford to build. Meanwhile, my crypto is like up and down, up and down. And thankfully, um, I told myself I will pull out this amount of money uh, once I made it to keep it safe for the, the solar project. So I did that in the month, that was in December of 2017. January, 2018, the big crash came and uh, the, the remaining crypto I had in there lost about 70% of its value. But thankfully I pulled out all these profits to safeguard it for the solar plant. So I basically saw myself as building a green energy, something I was building in my dad's homeland, you know, helping the environment, helping the local people with my gambling winnings from cryptocurrency. So it felt like a nice, you know, way to transfer that money. And also, as, as you probably feel too, building something physical in the real world is kind of exciting when you've only done digital before, you know, nothing that you, nef you can't touch, nothing you can like feel like I made this. So when I went back in 2019, I think it was 2019, yeah, I returned 2019 after it was built, got the photos, got the drone out, you know, took the camera there. It was actually my 40th birthday too. So it was kind of like one big trip to see the solar and and kind of have a travel uh, party with some friends there as well. So it was fun, but definitely left field. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, that's pretty out there, but very interesting for sure. Now, how is the business doing? Are you still involved with it? Is, still a, is it still up and running? Talk to us about today after a couple of years now. Yeah, so it's an interesting formula, the way it works. You essentially have 10 years of a guaranteed tariff return. So it's like a higher return. And then you still make whatever the going rate is at the time for the years after that. However, the way we build this is you get bank loans. So we built a 3.6 megawatt solar farm. Um, that costs around $3 million US to create all, all said and done. 
but I didn't put all that money in. We've got a partner there. We've got loans as well. So the money and it's solar, it's fairly simple. The sun shines, the government and local utilities buy their energy. And initially that money goes to running everything, the security and the maintenance, and also the bulk of it goes to paying down these loans. So it takes about four or five years to kind of fully pay back all the loans. And then you get pretty much pure profit. It's funny, like I was talking to someone, I said, you know what, this is probably the closest thing I've ever had to passive income. Now, when I think about like people think about what's true passive income, there's a certainly a, an upfront capital cost. So it's not like, you know, you're negative first, but then now it's, I'm not doing anything really. We have phone calls. We talk about things. Um, COVID took a bit of a hit. Like the government there obviously really has, you know, major economic downturn. So they've had to kind of slow down some of the payments, but it's still going, it's still paying down the loans. It's just not, it's kind of like expanding the time frame a little bit, but you know, fingers crossed. I've always been more worried about Russia invading the country than anything else. That's been the biggest concern. So I, I did watch when the army buildup was happening. I think it was earlier this year going, I hope this is just a show of force and not an actual invasion. <laughs> yeah, that would, uh, well, that'd be bad for many, many reasons. But yeah, that would be kind of a scary thing. Staying awake at night, staring at the ceiling, worried about the neighboring company invading your country. And uh, yeah, and there goes <laughs> your investments. Wow. Yeah, I've not had that experience myself. So I'm, I'm you'll have to, uh, well, I hope everything is okay on that one. Okay, so how did you get into angel investing? You took the profits from the cryptocurrency and got into angel investing, or it's the profits from the power plant that went into that? Or how, how did that look? Like angel investing, I would imagine, takes a considerable amount of funds to, to really get going. I actually thought the same. I thought I'd have to put in 50, 100, $250,000 to every single company I want to invest in. And I actually was surprised when I don't know if you know, there's a podcaster and an investor called Jason Kalkanis. Um, he runs This Week in Startups, a very long running, like 10 plus years uh, podcast. And he's had super successes, like a super angel. He was early to Uber, Robinhood, Com, Wealthfront, so many companies. And I, you know, I didn't think of it as a real option for me, but I'll, I'll, to put it into context, I, I left Australia for good in 2015. So I, I traveled to San Francisco and thought maybe I'll live here. Then I spent a bit of time in Canada again, you know, more travels happened in America and Europe and so on. But when I left Australia, I liquidated as many of my assets as I could. So the property I lived in, the investment properties, um, I transferred like my business from Australia to Canada. So I basically had, oh, and I exited from an angel investment. Now that one was completely random. I'd done it all the way back in 2007. I didn't even see it as an angel investment. I just had this friend who'd started a blog on cars at the same time as I started my blog on entrepreneurship, but his blog, he went down the venture backed finance kind of path. So he had, he had founders, sorry, he had a venture capitalists. He had some other owners and it grew to, it's funny. I think of it now as a small company, but at the time it ended up exiting for 62 million dollars, which is, you know, a pretty good result for a blog. I, because I was, friend with him early on, I think his third capital raise, I put a bit of money in. So it was my first sort of investment. And it came back th three times my money. It was good, not great, but you know, I was happy. So suddenly I was very liquid is a long story short from selling all this property. A lot of that was from the profits of my, my blogging company because I'd poured all that into just paying down all the mortgages to zero in, in my investment property in my, my home. So I found myself in Canada and also traveling in Europe. Okay, cryptocurrency money went into solar, but I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, 
I might buy some property in Canada, but I also want to explore alternative, you know, I, I've got some EFTs, all the traditional stuff. But angel investing became an option when I discovered Jason and really paid attention to what he was talking about and bought his book. So there's a book called Angel, well worth a read. And he has this philosophy where he recommends you, you try and get yourself into at least sort of 20 to 30 angel investments because you're probably going to get one or two hits and the other ones will either go to zero or they'll sort of stay at a level where they're not uh, superstars. You might get your money back or double your money or something like that. But he says, put in small amounts like 2000, 5,000, 10,000 across as many of these investments as you can afford to do, like maybe five to 10% of your net worth, something like that, depending on how old you are, of course. And then when the winners start to emerge, double down and triple down on those ones. So for example, I did an angel investment in a company called Lead IQ via Jason Syndicate. And this is the other thing that happened. I joined a syndicate, which has been like a real, I think a, like a secret, I feel, for angel investing. I mean, it's not really a secret. If you're in angel investing, you know about syndicates, you know about like AngelList, the website with all kinds of people leading syndicates. But then there's certain people like Jason being a super angel. He runs his own accelerator. He's got great deal flow. So the opportunities he brings to his syndicate are above average, I feel like. His strike rate is much higher than normal. So I've loved being a part of his syndicate. And my first investment in a company called Lead IQ, for example, I put $8,000 in. You know, And I was like, is this too much? Is this not enough? Um, I don't know where this is going to go, but let's experience the whole process. And I've seen it grow. That was been the fun thing. Uh, that company, you know, went from a fifteen million dollar company to a fifty million dollar company. To its most recent raise was two hundred million. And probably if it makes the next jump from a two hundred million to a half a billion or even more, it might be time to start taking some of the money off the table. It might even get acquired or eventually IPO. So, you know, I did that, and then I also threw in a bunch of two, four. $6,000 amounts into other companies. And I've seen a lot of those do nothing. So it's been interesting to kind of go, okay, Lead IQ did well. This other company called Steezy did well. It's, uh, it's Netflix for dance classes. NutriSense has been doing well. It's a little newer. It's a glucose monitoring, monitoring patch you wear, an app, and then a dietitian. So it's kind of like controlling your sugars to, to lose weight and be healthy. So it's been interesting just to see which companies take off, which ones sort of stagnate, new industries. Very exciting, but I've only put in maybe $100,000 over a period of four years now into these various angel investments, You know, double downing on a couple of the winners, most of them only putting in a small amount to begin with, and then watching them kind of stagnate or not quite hit rocket, rocket ship speed. And I'm hoping, you know, if I talk to you in maybe three years from now, one or two of these will actually be IPO listed or had a big exit, and then I'll return that 100,000 hopefully two or three or four or five, even up to a million dollars or more. I've already seen a couple that I've missed, which has been unfortunate because the same time as you can pick some winners, you can miss some of the winners and watch them grow to bigger companies and go, oh, why didn't I put some money in that? Because very big multiples. This, this is why I do it. I'm, I get excited about being involved even on a small level with these you know, companies doing exciting things. Uh, and then when I say exciting, it's one of them is a cat sitting, like Uber for cat sitters. Another one's doing satellite internet access. So that's very diverse, but you're getting to see exposure into these different spaces. But if you get a, like a real winner here, we're talking like a 20X return is low. A 100X return is a real winner. You know, Jason's had a few thousand X returns. And I don't know any other asset class other than say getting early into crypto where you get that potential return. So, you know, I'm, I want to be involved in this space. I just... I don't know where it's going to go necessarily, you know, in the near future, but I'd love to be more involved actually.
Well, I do think that it's important to have a certain percentage of your portfolio. And uh, I would say a lower percentage, certainly not the bulk of your portfolio, into something that has this type of risk reward. You know, if you put in, you know, if you have a million dollars and you're putting in 5% or something like that into something that has an opportunity to actually make a million dollars with just a 5% of, of your investment, you can actually double your entire net worth. So that is what we look at. You know, I work with some private clients and we're looking at some opportunities overseas. How can we put a small amount of money in where it's going to have these maximum types of rewards? Okay, it is certainly more risky. We're not doing this with your retirement accounts or you know, things that we expect that you're going to need the cash flow you know, in your later years. But if you have the time horizon to play with a couple of these types of things, I think it is good. Add to that, there is certain learning opportunities. I'm sure as you watch these types of companies, the business model, how it scales, what do the team look like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is learning opportunities. And I take every type of learning opportunity that I can possibly get. Yeah, actually, that's probably the thing I find the most beneficial has been this insight into, oh, for example, most of these companies are very much transitioning to uh, content marketing, SEO, as a long-term growth strategy, especially if they're you know, digital only. And that was funny because like, oh, that was my strategy with blogging and, and is my strategy with my current company and Bugs Done as well. But then to see, oh, so all these different spaces, we're all doing the same thing. We're all kind of trying to grow in the same way. So that was kind of insightful, validating. Obviously, they do it in a different scale, they're venture back. They've got a lot of money to spend, but yeah, it is. And I should note, especially with Jason, uh, he actually has all the syndicated investments agree to do essentially updates uh, where, they, where the founder will write an email once a month, once a quarter. Not everyone does it. It's usually a sign they're doing well when they do, but that is special. Like I'm part of some syndicates with some other like AngelList and some other people. They don't have these updates. So it's kind of like you put your money in and then you don't know what's going on until you see a news release of a new fundraise or something like that. But with Jason's one, it's like incremental. Oh, okay. Yeah. The numbers are good. Oh, they're hiring here. Oh, they, you know, they stopped doing this and they switched to this. So it's, it's really been insightful. Brilliant. Yeah. I think that those types of insights are well worth. And if you said $2,000, $4,000, $5,000 for an investment, I mean, that is not what I would have thought of when I here, angel investing. I guess I'm thinking originally much higher amounts, but I mean, that's certainly I mean, I, less I than like a tuition to. in a university <laughs> yeah. to kind of go back to our conversation before, you know, to see those types of things. It's also interesting, your point about the content marketing, because I've been doing content marketing for years and years and years. You've been doing it for years and years and years, and we already have such a firm background in it. So it's interesting that all these new companies, now they're relying on it when people like us we're very early to the party. I mean, content marketing is tough. I mean, it's not easy to do. We've been running this podcast for five years straight now. I've been doing email newsletters for longer than that. And it takes a lot of work and you don't often see the results instantly. I mean, it might take six months, a year or anything like that for a piece of content that you put out to really pick up. So it's not a quick strategy, but certainly if it's done correctly, it is a long-term strategy. Yeah, for sure. So, and I think that's a good segue. So let's talk about Inbox Done, your new company. Yeah. So I don't know if you've seen the thread maybe here and everything I've done, certainly early days. I was driven a lot by freedom. I feel like we probably share that, uh, Mikkel, with this desire to be anywhere, build systems, delegate. So 
with, if we go back to my asset editing company, I'm glad we've shared my entire story here because I can actually refer to that. I outsourced email and that's actually what freed me up for my first overseas trip solo. And then I didn't really think anything of it at the time, but when I transitioned to my coaching company, of course I had someone doing email and customer service. It happened so much sooner. I did it almost from day one as soon as I could afford it anyway with, with cash flow. And in fact, it grew to two people and then three people so we could have 24-7 hour support. And, and that was such an important thing for me because I did not want to be the kind of person who was trapped to my email like I was in the early days. Fast forward 2016, I'm in Vancouver. I'm at a networking event and the lady next to me says, you know, my biggest problem is I wake up in the morning and I do two hours of email and then I go to work or my company and throughout the day, I'm jumping in and out of my email. And sometimes I use it like a to-do list, whatever is in my inbox, it kind of guides what I'm supposed to do, but I know that's not necessarily the highest value activities. I can't help it. And I go home, I put the kids to sleep, you know, I, I do some stuff with the family and then I go and do another two hours of email and that's kind of my life. And I turned to her and said, well, I actually go into my email and reply maybe once a month, uh, once a week at most. And she says to me, how is that even possible? Because everything would fall apart if I did that. And I said to her, well, I've always had a person or people reply to 80, 90% of the messages and complete all these processes that I don't need to be involved with and leave maybe 5% for me, which go into a folder for me or they update me on Slack. There's something you need to reply to. So that I've really eliminated the stress and simplified the way I communicate and, and handle this part of a business, which is always such a time suck for new founders. So after hearing from her, I said, okay, I've got to start this as a service and see if other entrepreneurs need it. And uh, I did a little test run. I actually hired or brought in a co-founder, Claire. She was one of my email managers at the time, one of my assistants. We did an experiment with two clients, worked well. Obviously, there were some questions. Can we do what we built for me as a system for other industries, other people? What about privacy? What about security? All these fears people have around handing over access to their email and everything that entails. So we had to manage that. And then we had to learn how to build a team. So we started hiring people, email assistants, they're kind of like executive assistants who specialize in email management, calendar management, that sort of thing. And then uh, long story short, fast forward to today, we're, we're a team of about 30 people and we handle email and calendar and sort of admin executive assistant tasks. But really we specialize in the hiring and the training and the vetting of people who become email and calendar management specialists. Because we find those two things are really the thing that takes time away from entrepreneurs and founders, executives, that sort of person. And I've always been surprised because the industries that we serve are so diverse, you know, dentists, lawyers, but then candy store owner, car salesman, venture capitalist, angel investor, online coach, you know, it's, it is universal. We're all kind of dealing with email. Um, and it's been fun to actually sell something that is a freedom simplifying tool to give people the option if they want to travel or spend more time with their family or maybe exercise finally on a consistent basis because they're not doing that two hours in the morning and the two hours at night. So I've been enjoying you know, running this new business. Yeah, I probably spend a good two hours in the morning, two hours at night, and probably two or three hours in the middle of the day as well. I'm probably okay. on email five, six hours a day responding to clients and leads and subscribers and business partners and JVs and anything and everything. And it's funny because I have, 
oh, probably about 10 different email accounts for different businesses and projects wow. and things. So I start at one and I go through that inbox and then I go to the next one and then the next one and the next one. And then when I'm done that, I kind of start back at the beginning again. So, and then there's more stuff in there. I actually liked it a lot when I lived over in the Middle East because the time difference was so different that I would send emails and then I would not get a reply the same day. Now that I'm on Eastern Standard Time, I send an email and then I get a reply in like 27 minutes. And then I reply and it goes back and forth. We play email yeah. tag all day. Yeah. yeah. So if you're telling me that you have a solution for this, Yara, well, you might have do. a new client on your hand here. I'm, I'm curious. How come you haven't thought to outsource this before, uh, Mikhail? You know what? It just, to be perfectly honest, it's not something that occurred to me. I just kind of think that I'm too special and that no one can do. <laughs> I'm saying this half joking, but I mean... And this kind of goes back to our conversation before. You know, I use automation for the things that it automates and I have people in my business who will help me do the things that I think that they can do and automation can't do. I guess it is maybe a fear of letting go. I don't know. Just being completely honest. Um, I, I usually am trying to put up barriers where people cannot email me these days, where people like they have to go fill out a form and on the form, it has all of the information. They have to submit everything before it will accept them to the message to go through. So I don't have to go back and say, hey, what about this? What about this? What about that? Uh, I, those are the types of processes is the barriers to people contacting me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, what, the way you describe that kind of, I don't want to let go. Maybe no one can do as good a job of replying to these emails as me went through it, you know, there will always be certain emails where you have a relationship with a person and you need to be the one to continue replying. But I was surprised because I handed over at least 90% eventually of the replies, even to things that I would have previously said, I have to be the one to do this. For example, selling a course that I created, I thought no one can know my training. No one can know my coaching like I can. But then I realized if I brought in this email assistant and said, take the course, you know, you're not going to be instantly a guru at it, but if you on a day-to-day -day basis, keep ask, answering questions and helping people, they actually get better at it than I did, or I was because it's their job. You know, their job every day is to be the person in the email replying. They're building a knowledge base. That's something we do for all clients. So they're building template libraries to answer all common questions. They're building standard operating procedures. So if this email comes in, new client triggers new entry into your, you know, customer relationship management tool, task management tool, accounting, bookkeeping, you know, all those sorts of things. They take all that over. They build all that to run, you know, it's almost like they build a system for running your email as well. And that, especially if you give it enough time, like it's not going to happen in one month, but it takes about a month to hand over. But then month four, month five, month six, they've done it for long enough. They almost are like your clone or your double to a certain degree. So I've I've found that it's so funny you say that. I was talking to oh my goodness, I was talking to someone last week, and I was like, all my all my business needs is like four of me and like six of you, and like well, that's <laughs> it. We're billionaires, you know. We just need to figure out how we clone ourselves, and we're set. There we go. <laughs> Well, anytime you want to do a discovery call, happy to do one with you, Mikhail, if you want. We, we do assign two inbox managers or assistants to everyone. Um, that's because we want to provide redundancy and, and you know, give you the multiple check-ins throughout the day. So if, and, and I know you mentioned, you know, you, it's a habit. That actually is the hardest part with this. This is probably the thing that for a lot of entrepreneurs, 
you feel like you have to know everything going on in your inboxes. Otherwise something will break or you'll miss an opportunity. And you almost have to switch that around to, I need someone to still do that, but they need to keep me out of that space and just tell me what's the most important things I need to know about. What are the priorities? And I can ignore everything else. That is really a waste of my time. So for me, it's been such a mental relief too. I don't kind of wake up thinking I need to be the one to answer everything in that inbox, or I might be missing out on an opportunity because I haven't checked my email or, you know, I've replied to the first 10, but there's another 50 under them that I never get to that kind of feeling as well. So honestly, that yeah, if I, if I look at an email and it's too long, then it's like I set it as unread and then it's like, I'll come back to this later. So sometimes some, sometimes I have people like uh, clients or leads or prospects send me an email and it'll be like 4,000 words or 3,000 words. Like it's a novel. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. I don't have time to reply to this right now. So I just put it as unread. And then I come back to it. And I see like, oh my God, that was two months ago. I started yeah. to reply to this poor person. Yeah. They poured their heart out to me. So this is an official apology to everybody out there. If you've wrote me a long email and I didn't respond in a timely manner, you know why. If you send me a one-line email, you'll probably get a response within like 30 minutes. Or hire an assistant and they'll even reply better, even 24 better. hours later. So, yeah. <laughs> so how does this, okay, quick question on this one. So how does this work? They pretend to be you and they answer on your behalf or they, they literally say, hi, I'm Mikkel's executive assistant and here's the answer that you're looking for. Mostly the latter. Uh, almost in all situations, we recommend you introduce them as part of your team. They are part of your team. You work directly with them. You can call them whatever you like, an executive assistant, an email assistant, a customer service rep. I have Alex in my coaching business. He's my you know email support person. Uh, we have Armin and, and Jeff in Inbox Dunn's own you know email account. So they're not pretending to be me. We have had a couple of clients who needed us to be them. More often than not, that's like a work situation where they can't be seen to have someone you know in their inbox, and we don't prefer that because obviously there's a little feeling of someone else has written something and it wasn't me. Yeah, so it's a bit icky. Yeah. Then. So we don't recommend it, but it is something we have done, but we definitely prefer we step in and we think it's better because it shows your company's growing, you're expanding your team. Plus it acts as a barrier. So, you know, they reply and sometimes let's reply, hi, thanks for your email. That's a great question. We need Mikkel to answer that. So, you know, he'll get back to you. We'll let him know it's there. And that's so much better than, and no offense, it's sitting in your inbox is unread for two months without getting a reply, right? So just that one little <laughs> I'm thing. I'm sorry, yeah. everyone. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, because there's definitely, you know, someone else pretending to be Mikkel's doppelganger. That is a little bit icky for sure. And then, yeah, it would just be, I guess, some of the privacy issues that we would have to work through, you know, when you were talking about the careers, you mentioned lawyer, like, yeah, lawyer, doctor, lawyer and doctors, goodness, like, and venture capitalists, we've had all so big finance, big legal and, and big medical, it, it, there's ways to, to deal with every situation. Um, we ask every client when we start, what are mission critical, you know, high risk content that we're going to be exposed to? And how do you want us to deal with that? Maybe we shouldn't see it at all. So for like the really private stuff, medical and financial information, we can silo it. So for example, separate email account only for financial stuff that only you will see or only your accountant will see or whatever. Um, sometimes it's simply a matter of, we will know the emails there. We'll always make sure it goes to you and we'll tell you on Slack, hey, Mikkel, 
your big investor is waiting for a signature. It's just in your folder. We won't touch it. You know, we might've seen it and that's okay. So we kind of custom build it. It's very bespoke, whatever your situation is. And we definitely want you to be completely upfront. Like I always recommend to anyone thinking about this, go into your inbox after you hear me talk about this, look at all your emails and ask yourself, okay, which ones do I need to be replying? And then which ones don't need to be me? And Often that's like an 80-20 rule. 80%, you don't really need to be the person. 20%, you probably need some involvement. And then which are the, the situations where it is something where you only want to be the person there, no one else should see it. And that for some people, that's none. But for lawyers and doctors and medical, that, that can be you know a proportion. But even if you get 50%, like a low number of those emails taken off your plate and someone else is doing it, that could be an hour or two hours a day. And that's a lot for you know high-performing individuals. What do you do instead for two hours of extra time? That's a gift we can give people. So <laughs> no <laughs> doubt, no doubt. Yeah. Well, and my my brain is already turning gears in my head, you know, just having someone deal with some of the inbound inquiries, you know, opposed to myself. And, you know, sometimes I have team members doing it, but then they have also got other things to do. If I can have someone that's outsourced, that's professionally trained just for that, you know, and then keep an email account just for private clients or for private matters that doesn't get filled up with other stuff or the things that are not important, I guess. I mean, all of it's important, but I mean, there's just different degrees or levels yeah. or things prioritization. like that. Priori yeah. Prioritization. Yeah. Thank you very much. We call much. it triage, actually. We triage email the way, you know, doctors triage patients. Mm -hmm. So this is a dying patient. Mikhail has to read it, you know, versus this is going to be okay. We'll deal with it today sometime, you know. Um, I think it's one thing to mention too. You did say there, not have someone in your team do it as part of their role. It's been interesting because we have some clients who say we really like having a dedicated person or team on just email and, and calendar management. And we like that it's not someone in the team, like a full-time employee. That's what like I'm a, thinking. Yeah, yeah. A degree of separation Correct. From, from that. So I find that curious, but you know, we are very much focused on hiring English as a first language, superior communicators. Most of them are American. We're not outsourcing to India or the Philippines or Ukraine. I hate saying that, but those are sort of the overseas countries people expect to get low labor from. So you know, we're charging a bit more, we're paying a bit more, we're getting more local uh, staff, but that's what's needed. If you're going into email, you really have to have attention to detail, uh, emotional empathy, really know the big picture of what you're operating within. Like we kind of learn about your company and your role in the company so that we can sort of see what we're doing from that perspective and not just being a reacting robot where it's just like insert template, click send, insert template, click send, which kind of what you get with customer service agent companies, they have a place when you have simple needs, $10 an hour labor, it's, it's a great solution. But, you know, we're a bit more niche bespoke in a very high value area, very personal area. Brilliant. I love it. Yaro, super interesting conversation, super interesting business. I'm very excited about it. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to learn more about Inbox Done, where can we send them? Inbox done.com book a discovery call you'll actually get to speak to me and we can go over what your needs are with email and executive assistant calendar management admin tasks that sort of thing and if you just want to kind of everything we talked about angel investing um, blogging podcasting it's all in my blog uh, yarrow.blog so y-a-r-o dot b-l-o-g brilliant yarrow thank you so much for today's conversation and i will talk to you soon thank you I want to get some feedback from you, the listener. We're looking at 
ways that we can take the podcast in new directions, new guests that we wanna have on the show, new ideas we wanna share with you. So we have a lot of threads going for this at Expat Money Forum, our private Facebook group. If you go to expatmoneyforum.com, you can join the conversation. I wanna hear feedback from you guys. What topics have we not covered that you wanna hear more of? Do you wanna hear more stories from successful expats who have moved offshore? Do you wanna hear more business-related stuff, more finance-related stuff? Are you more interested in immigration and visas and passports? Is it the investments or real estate? I wanna know what you are interested in. This show is not about me. It is about you guys. It is about all of my amazing listeners and trying to help inspire you and get you the best up-to-date knowledge every single Wednesday when I publish this show. So join the conversation at Expat Money Forum. Let me know what you think, what you want to hear more about, how I can best serve you. It's really important to me to make this show the absolute best in our space. And I think we're off to a really good start podcast has been going for over four years now, which is just hard to believe. It seems like just yesterday I started it and the feedback has been amazing, but there's always room to improve. There's always things we can do better. So share your knowledge, share your expertise, share what you want to hear, share your wants, your desires, your needs, your goals, everything with us at Expat Money Forum. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.